When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode, it's the final part of The Political Editors. We began with Watergate, we end with Partygate. Stephen Swinford, current political editor, it's really good to chat with him. He really lifts the lid on, on some very recent political history. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, we take a look at the news with today's columnist panel. The Columnists with Alibert, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. Yes, Robert Crampton's here. Hello, Robert. Hello. And Alice Thompson's here. Hello, Alice. Hi. Where are you, Alice? And I am in a shed, which I've been told to be in. <laughs> um, so it may to be, be clear, by bit, the producer, uh, not by your husband. Who's not, not... <laughs> I've been banished. I've been banished by the Times to a shed. Yeah. Uh, which is quite, actually, thank God it's not raining here because this shed is quite leaky, but I do use it occasionally when I'm trying to get rid of the family. So we are going to speak in a moment to the, shed, the winner of Shed of the Year. Which Archie. Very, Archie, which you're very excited yeah, about. Yeah, well, I need right. some advice, I I'm think. very excited. He put my story on his Instagram, apparently, according to my daughter. Have you gone viral? Yeah, my daughter follows him, and she checked it, and he's put... Well, yeah. we'll come to that. That's what yeah. we call trailing ahead. That's yeah. the sort of content that our <laughs> listeners are here for. First of all, let's talk about faith. Uh, front page of the Times today, Britain isn't a Christian nation now, say clergy. It's amazing, it's a huge poll. Uh, of uh, priests uh, in England. Uh, Britain can no longer be described as a Christian country. Three quarters of Church of England priests believe. Uh, most wide-ranging poll of frontline Anglican clergy uh, for a decade has found a, a desire for significant changes in teaching on sex, sexuality, marriage and the role of women to bring the church more into line with public opinion. What do you make of this, Alice? I don't know if you're a churchgoer. Are you surprised by this? Um. What I think is actually a great idea is we've asked the vicars finally what they think because they haven't been asked for too long. And on issues like gay marriage, I think it's really important to know their views because they're actually much more in line with the rest of the country than you'd think. And they do believe in gay marriage and they do want gay marriage in church, which I think is great. But um, I, th I think it's just interesting to know where it's not always just what the archbishop or the bishops think. 
Um, and particularly as I think it's going the other way in other places around the world, places like Africa, where it's becoming more traditional and uh, more anti-gay and um, more belligerent about women. Um, it's good that you've got these vicars speaking out, to be honest. Interestingly, mm. we just had a message in from Reverend Dr James Bruce. Mm-hmm. It says, 75% of clergy surveyed think England isn't a Christian country. 53% think the solution is to make the church less Christian, to follow the country, mad as a box of frogs. And that was a striking thing, reading the, the, the detail of it, Robert. The, the suggestion that the solution for the church is to to move essentially further away from the church's teaching on sex before marriage, yeah. gay marriage, the role of women. And it seems a weird sort of... I suppose it's, it's, the, it's the tension at the heart it's, well, of it's, the, it's, the church. It's, it's very tricky because you're, yeah. you're, uh, you're trying to sell a philosophy which uh, most people don't agree with anymore. But if you water it down, you uh, what 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 what's left? Uh, you're just looking at a sort of kind of vaguely social democratic, be nice to people yeah. uh, approach. It's I mean I'm conflicted about this because uh, I don't believe in God. I think it's uh, I mean I go to church occasionally for uh, weddings and funerals and uh, memorial services and so forth, and I think it's I like going and it's a great place to go until they start talking about God, <laughs> at which point I can't trade with it anymore. Yeah. Uh, but the ethics and the people, uh, I've got friends who go to church and they're, you know, they're really good people who do good things in the world and I think that's true of the vast majority of vicars. So I don't want to see it necessarily uh, decline. And also I think it fulfills a major social function, especially in the countryside. Uh, so I don't want to see it uh, d- decline in that way, but I think it's selling something which isn't true, mm. I'm afraid, and that is the problem. Uh, and... So it gets itself into this terrible mix-up about, uh, you know, it has to revise its own teachings. It's interesting, Alice, in the, in the, the, the story today, there's a quote from the Bishop of Leeds, the right mm. Reverend Nick Baines. He says, on behalf of the Church of England, the Church is the Church, and as such, not a club. Mm. It, has its, it has a distinct vocation that does not include seeking popularity. Mm. Which I just thought was a really striking quote, because actually part of the job of the clergy is to presumably to grow the flock to seek popularity to bring more people in i think popularity is a weird word with religion because it's not really about that it's about faith isn't it? it's not trying to yeah, make yeah, yourself yeah. more popular you hope but i kind of like what robert's saying is it's vaguely democratic and it's sort of rather wishy-washy and nice to people and, and i don't think there's anything wrong in that it's all you know i think mm. the church of England was always more like that i mean it was based mm. on such an odd premise anyway with henry the eighth mm. it's not like anyone was deeply passionate about religion at that stage mm. so um, I think, in a way, I rather like the fact that yeah. it's a social construct. That you know, we go to church. You go at Christmas. You go at Easter. If you do go, it yeah. brings people together. That you have the church fates. I love all that stuff. I don't. Um, I'm like Robert. I don't really believe in the religious side, but I do think it holds us together. And if they can act like that more, I think that they probably will get more people coming. Yeah, I mean, it was based on a fudge, and uh, it's preferable, perhaps, because this isn't. This survey does not suggest that there's a decline in religion. It says there's a decline in Christianity. But if you look at uh, uh, Islam and uh, Pentecostal churches. There's loads around where I live in, yeah. in Hackney, and I think they're probably more uh, extreme on these sort of social issues, the cultural issues that we're yeah. talking about. They're actually growing, so there is a desire for uh, religious attendance and belief. So it might be better to, for people to go to somewhere which is a bit fudgy and a bit liberal than, yeah. than somewhere which is hellfire and uh, intolerant. Yeah, and actually, one of the things because I, yeah, I'm not religious and one of the things that i've always found 
sort of interesting and surprising is because about the fact Wes Streeting came on the show and was talking about exactly this. He is a Christian, but mm. he has big problems with the fact that he's also gay, mm. and essentially his church doesn't welcome him because of that. Or, or I think it's, or, it's a second class citizen. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And those two, his, yeah. his sexuality and his religious beliefs collide. Yeah. But then I just don't. But then that's when I that's why I, I personally struggle then with his religious belief. Yeah. But that's what put yeah. me off. I think the church is. I've got the same. You know, my eldest son's gay, and I um, that the idea that three of my children get married in a church if they want to, but he mm. can't, just does seem extraordinary in this day and age. And then, stranger, having interviewed Richard Coles, who had to have secret weddings with, mm. when he was a vicar for gay people, the idea that people have to creep into church to get married when you should be wanting to celebrate having people there who do feel religious, who do want to get married, who do want to have a committed relationship. Seems completely bizarre. Well, no, but the thing that I age. don't really understand is if you are gay and that you're not welcome, I don't know why you would want to get married there. Uh, no, I don't understand that either. But that's uh, what I suppose. That's... I think with someone like Richard Coles was really, you know, he does believe in God and he wanted to be accepted. And I think that makes it harder. Yeah. You just well, think he's, you're he's... being rejected by the very people that you desperately, you know, want yeah. to accept. He believes in a more forgiving, tolerant God, presumably. Yeah. Uh, and he thinks the church has got it wrong. Uh, I thought there was one really interesting quote from one priest who said, that, 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 talking about the strain that vicars are under. Yeah. And usually people say, oh, they're not paid very well or they're having to run loads of churches. He said, the pressure of justifying the Church of England's position to increase any secular and sceptical audiences. I mean, that kind of says it all, really. Yeah, You're yeah. doing a job. And people don't believe. They don't believe your fundamental offer. Yeah. And the reason they're all having to share... Uh, you know, yeah, do, people, do multiple churches. Yeah. There's not enough people are coming. Yeah. It's all part of the same problem. Yes, so... so yeah, I mean, I think it needs to move. I think, it, insofar as it's a good thing, it's a social thing, and it needs to maybe move towards that. But that means taking God out of it, yeah, which yeah. is which is the raison d'etre. So, but it's fascinating, and obviously, there's a big, you know, in terms of the politics of the church, there's a big tension between this, 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 the the, the priests here who want to move to a more liberal yeah. position, and the tension that then creates with. Anglican churches around the world, and particularly in Africa, where they're much more traditional. Yes, and that's and, and, and so and Arch, every Archbishop of Canterbury spends his uh, his uh, his stint keeping the whole thing together yeah, yeah. with some with increasingly uh, tricky uh, tricky fudge. Yeah, yeah. Let's mm. um, it is fascinating. I'd, I'd mm. recommend whether you're religious or not. It's a really, really fascinating insight into one of our big sort of national institutions and its its potential future. Well worth having a look at uh, look online at that. Um, Alice, uh, your column today. Um, you've you've performed a U turn. I know, it's always ne sort of nerve-wracking performing U-turn because then everyone expects you to do on everything else. But Miss Snuffy, who is meant to be the strictest school teacher in the world, um, Catherine Burble Singh, Catherine Burble -Singh mm. uh, and she runs a school uh, in Wembley in North London. And I'd always thought she was just too strict because they're not allowed to talk in the corridors and they get sort of marched off to the loos in breaks and um, they sit in silence quite often. They have to put up their hands if they want to talk. Um but actually, she does get these phenomenal results. And she's it's not a selective school, but they were all getting eights and nines in their GCSEs. And then they all get A's, A-stars and their A-levels. And the looks on these children's faces when they get those results, she's completely transformed their lives. So I do now think maybe it is worth it, you know, the, the, that strict discipline, you know, has given them a sort of different chance in life that they will all be able to go on, they'll be able to get any apprenticeships or jobs or, you know, some of them had sort of 10 nines at GCSE and that's phenomenal. That's not matched by anywhere else almost in the country. And so I do think that she is doing something that's very interesting. We should be looking at it. Mm. I'm, I'm slightly torn on it because there's part, part of me, see, she clearly gets results and she clearly is very passionate about it. The sort of slight fog warning on, particularly on social media about it and judging everyone else and every other school and parent and all it, it all just then becomes part of a sort, you know, 
of a sort of culture war again as to whether or not you're on Team Burble Sing or not, rather than thinking there might be something in this. Yeah, I didn't know that about social media. Yeah. She, she, she's kind of boastful. She's quite active she? on there. Right, fine. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I'm conflicted as well. I think the pendulum in state education swung too far towards kind of creativity, so-called creativity, and lack of structure. And uh, education suffered. It sounds to me like she's gone a bit far back the other way. If you can't uh, talk in the corridors, that's part of being educated and growing up and sharing yeah, yeah. ideas. Uh, being escorted to the loo, I don't like that. Uh, but in terms of saying, just because these kids are from not are from relatively dis- disadvantaged background doesn't mean they can't do really well at school, uh, then that is great if, if, she's, if she's taking that on and uh, promoting ambition and widening people's horizons. And I liked the bit uh, in Alice's column where she said she's very much for... She doesn't accept excuses for things and she promotes individual responsibility because I think there's uh, there's a tendency across society to uh, avoid individual responsibility for things. And so if we're bringing up... If if she's helping to bring up a a, a cohort of kids who are saying, yeah, this is... is, You know, there's all these problems which are not of my making, but I can make my own way nonetheless, then that's a good thing. Yeah, more so than the exam results in a way. Well, it's interesting, and always good to hear a columnist admit they got they've changed their mind or something. Mm. Wouldn't catch me doing that. No. Uh, Robert was talking earlier on about um, mistaken identity because Mob Wagner's coming up later. He's been mistaken for the mercenary group. Um, you said you'd been mistaken for. I think he's called. Jimenez. He's called Jimenez. Yeah, Jimenez. I can't remember his first name. Well, Ashley's been in touch from Glasgow. Speaking of the Spanish golfer Jimenez, I once failed to recognise him while working in a Dundee restaurant when, when a student. It? I asked him what brought him here, to which he replied, the golf. I asked, was he watching? And he explained, no, he was currently leading <laughs> the St Andrews <laughs> Lynx Championship. Yeah, that was, my, actually, that was my, actually me. Might have I better not recognise him, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there we are. Very good. Right. Right, now let's turn our attention to Sheds. Uh, we are going to speak to the owner of the Shed of the Year, Archie Proudfoot. Archie, are you there? I'm here. Are you in your shed? Sadly not, no. I'm away from Shed. Uh, <laughs> I'm on holiday in Norfolk. Oh, yeah. To be honest, if that was your... I can now see you. It's a very sort of posh bedstead there. It would be very weird if that was in your shed. Um, Archie, <laughs> tell us what, what made your shed an award-winning shed? I think what they really loved about my shed was the story of it coming back from the dead. Yeah. Uh, and I restored it from being a rotten husk that really should have been torn down and replaced. Um, and the reason I didn't do that was because it was early in the, it was sort of the middle of the pandemic and timber prices had gone through the roof and I was bored. Um, and I thought, you know what, let's give it a go, see if we can save it. And I, I brought it back, you know, using old recycled bits of timber and just the tools I had. And it was some of the most fun. It was probably the most, it was the most fun I had during the pandemic. Um, I was just in, in my garden hacking away at this old husk until it came back to life. And Lazarus then, shed. The Lazarus shed. And then yeah. once, it was back, once it was back from the dead and looked like it could survive again, I really sort of, turned um turned my skills as a professional artist um to to absolutely just covering it and enjoying myself in the most way possible to turn it into a sort of miniature Sistine Chapel of sheds. But it, at what point have you patched it up, repaired it, replaced it to the extent that it's like um the, uh, knife, the knife with two new handles and one trigger, new, triggers yeah. broom in only falls yeah. and horses. Yeah. He's had it for a long time. He's had ten handles and five brushes. Mm. Um, at what point is there anything left of the original shed, Archie? 
There's still quite a bit left of the original shed, but basically almost the entire floor was rotten. And mm. so that was what made it particularly precarious. So when all of the rot of the floor was cut away, on it looked like a game of Jenga that was about to collapse. Mm. Well, so, a strip of floor in the middle, and um, it was tottering. Listeners uh, yeah. have been getting in touch with their shared stories. David says, it sounds a bit like yours actually, actually. At one point, the side of our shed had almost completely rotted away. I was helping some election candidates take their plastic posters, which were a thing in some places, including Northern Ireland, helping them take them down after the election so they wouldn't get fined for fly posting. My dad saw the posters and decided to rebuild the rotten wall uh, out of planks and election posters. I was supposed nice. to return the posters mm. to the candidates, but I couldn't because they'd become part of the structure of the shed. Excellent. <laughs> Brilliant. What, what was it I, that you I, liked so much about this, Robert? About Archie's shed? Yeah. Uh, I like the fact it was it was it was quite modest. I mean, it's very colourful and it's it's, a, it's fantastic. But it was it's it looked like a natural shed, whereas a lot of the entrance in this competition, uh, they actually look like sort of chalets or summer houses, or I mean, it's just people throwing money at them. And I think one guy was giving Archie a bit of hate on on social media, and and because he wasn't sort of posh enough, I think. Yeah, and, I'm reading uh, on Mail Online, disgruntled Shed of the Year contestants yeah. who spent thousands of pounds on their efforts have been left scratching their heads after a basic <laughs> budget DIY shed triumphed in their place. Well, that's, so it's a great, it's a great, you know, man of the people story. Yeah, because other people just spent thousands of pounds on it. Just, I wrote about it yesterday and got a lot of credit with my daughter because she follows Archie on Instagram and she saw <laughs> that she saw that Archie had put my, my little thing up on his Instagram. So, thank you, mate. Yeah, uh, no worries. People are not happy. <laughs> Alice, talk us through your. You're in your shed right now. Talk us through your shed. Yeah, our shed has had various iterations. I have to say, it's been a Wendy house for quite a bit when they were little, and then it has been for chickens. And at the moment, it's kind of tool shed. But I oh. use it when I'm working if I try and get away from everyone. So I like it. Cred, uh, cred shed. It's fairly basic. Yeah, I was thinking of painting actually. I suddenly yeah. now I've, now I've seen Robert's column. I thought actually I may give it a go. We we got in fact we uh, our shed started leaking in February 2020. Mm. Uh, I mean, we, we it, unlike Archie, I'm not up to the job of. It, I'd, I'd patched it up as much as I could. Oh, yeah, yeah. Needed to replace it. Mm. So uh, we took all the stuff out of it. With the whole kitchen was full of lawnmowers and you know bikes and all that sort of stuff. And then we went into lockdown, and we thought we can't. However long we're in lockdown for, we can't live with the lawnmower. No. So it forced you to do something. So we had to put it all back. And so in the yeah. end, yes, yeah, so eventually it came back. So we, but we just had a very basic shed built. Yeah. Just a bit too small as well. well I think a little, a little leak is permissible in, in a shed. Yeah, in fact, yeah, yeah. it adds to kind of authenticity. The smell, you know. the damp. Yeah. Yeah, the <laughs> Exactly. Um, Archie, where do you think you draw the line between a shed and what is basically, as, as Rob was saying, a chalet and these people who are giving you grief online? Yeah, I mean, I think it's effectively draw, you can draw the line at insulation and like a, an airtight seal. Yeah, at like that it. point, it becomes a garden building, mm. which is a totally valid and, and a beautiful thing to have. And I considered actually tearing down that shed and building a garden <laughs> building um, to be a kind of proper home studio. But I, I just couldn't I couldn't really be bothered. Yeah. I didn't want to spend the money, <laughs> frankly. I wanted, yeah. to have a bit, I wanted to have a bit of fun and, and working on the working yeah. on a shed fun because it's it's light height. It's not like a building of that or a proper structure yeah. where you need to do things correctly. It needs to be mm. everything level. It needs to be on point. If it's it's, got to if be, there's not, 
if there's not a seal, all of that money and all of that effort is just going to go down. Yeah, straight. it's got to be drafty. It's got to be drafty. And any source of heating has got to be a fire hazard. Yeah, and mice <laughs> need to be able to get in to eat some yeah, of what you yeah, can say. Yeah. yeah, in fact, reading these quotes, shed enthusiast Alex Dodman uh, spent four months and £2,000 building his uh, sh- uh, Alps-style ski chalet. Mm-hmm. He told Mail Online... Uh, I, I was gutted to have lost, especially because I put blood, sweat and tears into building my shed. Mm. In my opinion, the winning shed was just a shed. I think that's so <laughs> great. I mean, congratulations. Well done for putting yeah. your blood, sweat and tears and your two grand and your four months. into yeah. And you've still got your shed, mate. You've still, you've got, still your got, got your shed. Enjoy your yeah. shed. Yeah. Enjoy your shed. I know. I also like. I just want to just want to clarify. Like, mine didn't happen overnight without a huge amount of blood, sweat, and tears on yeah. my part. Well, quite like, a, a lot went into that. Uh, a lot of hours and a lot of love and a lot of time. And and I mean, I put money in mine. Like, there's a lot of gold in that shed. There's about five hundred pounds. <laughs> That's you a very know, good point. Archie's, um, Archie's also it wasn't free. Yeah, Archie's also, Archie's also got a great moustache. Yeah, he's got a great moustache, which yeah, moustache, which with a lot of you over as well. Blood, yeah. sweat, and tears have gone into that moustache as well. Alice Thompson and Robert Clampton there, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, part seven of the Political Editors. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. We're all right. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken. Has it not? This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Since 1785, Times journalists have been writing the first draft of history. 
In our series, The Political Editors, we've reflected on half a century of politics with the people who had a front row seat. We began with Watergate and we end with Partygate. In part seven, current political editor Stephen Swinford on the political violence of three years with three prime ministers. Tories squaring up to each other, serene Liz Truss as her premiership blew up and sacking Kwasi Kwarteng by tweet. In the two and a half years that I've been political editor, we've had three prime ministers, at least 42 ministerial resignations, and literally they physically squared up to each other in the garden. The violence, the political violence nearly ended in fisticuffs. Kwasi Kwarteng was completely unaware that he was going to be sacked, and he learned that he was going to be sacked reading that tweet and the Times Live blog. Steve, one of the really striking things, looking back over all of the political editors we've spoken to, half a century of political history, where we think almost everything that could happen did happen, and yet you're the political editor, right slap bang in the middle of a pandemic. It was a very challenging time. There were several scoops that the Times broke during that period, including revealing that there was going to be a second lockdown, and there was an incredible amount of dysfunction, an incredible amount of issues in number, number 10, and problems, and the result of that, what we came out from, was Boris Johnson tried to reset his premiership. He tried to start again. He got rid of Dominic Cummings and he wanted to find a new path forward. He wanted sunlit uplands. And it precipitated the most incredible period in politics of political violence that I think most people would accept for, for generations. It was in the two and a half years that I've been political editor, we've had three prime ministers, at least 42 ministerial resignations. Uh, it's, been, it's been politics on hyperspeed for two and a half years. It's amazing. You've had as many prime ministers in two and a half years as Phil Webster managed in almost two decades. Because he had basically John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. It's been a period of extraordinary political dysfunction on multiple fronts. And being the political editor at the time being able to report on that. And my great predecessor, Francis Elliott, who you've also interviewed, when I interviewed for this job, said, the great thing about the time, Steve, is you get to tell the truth. Now, you, you and I know Francis is a, a, a deeply cynical man on many levels, but he meant it. And it is the great privilege that my job is to give readers a ringside seat on these events without fear or favour and literally just tell them what is happening. There's a nice symmetry as well, because this series began with Fred Emery, who was the political editor in the late 70s. But before that, he covered Watergate. And your political editorship so far has been dominated in many ways by Partygate. And actually, sometimes we get a bit caught up in the idea that everything that's happening right now is unprecedented and new. And actually, the fall of a president 50 years ago, the fall of a prime minister on your watch. And it was a kind of the drip, drip nature of Partygate. So... When I started as political editor, all the seeds were there. The events, many of these events had already happened, these lockdown breaching parties. And when they started to emerge, the key figures had, were also in place. So Dominic Cummings had left number 10, had animus against the prime minister, clearly thought he was completely incompetent, a shopping trolley. And the leaks just kept coming and coming. He doesn't have a plan. He doesn't know how to be prime minister. And we'd only got him in there because we had to solve a certain problem, not because we thought that he was the right person to run in the country. And it became completely unsustainable. And one of the most interesting things from my perspective about covering that period is the total erosion of trust in number 10. So number 10, it relies on trust. It relies on when it says something is not true, that people report that. But because things had happened and it was issuing very firm denials that there had been any parties, that there'd been any issues in number 10 at all, it just became apparent that 
these were lies, that there were real issues with what was emanating from the building in number 10. And there was almost during that, under Boris Johnson's premiership, a total breakdown in trust between the lobby and number 10. And it's interesting that because actually, and lots of people will, will shout at the radio and they'll say, oh, I don't know why you've ever trusted them. Politicians have always lied. But there has been this sort of agreement, this unspoken rule between special advisors and ministers and the press, journalists, that you don't lie. They might obfuscate, they might not return your calls, but you don't tell straightforward lies. And that was, it was quite a breach, wasn't it, in that unwritten rule? It was a huge breach of that unwritten rule. And for a lot of Boris Johnson's premiership in the aftermath of it, we've been in a debate about what is a lie? What is misleading? Is it intentional? Is it unintentional? Is it knowing? Is it not knowing? But either way, you ended up in a situation where where effectively the lines from number 10 were just untenable and unsustainable. And that went right to the top ultimately because you had the Prime Minister standing up in the Commons, Boris Johnson, saying that there were no parties and there were no, no events that had happened in number 10. And these lines turned out to be wrong. I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no COVID rules were broken. His defence that he wasn't aware of these events and therefore couldn't be held accountable ultimately for them, it didn't wash with the Privileges Committee as we saw and he's no longer an MP. It's extraordinary because... It happened so quickly after the 2019 general election. He wins this extraordinary uh, majority. He, I think in an interview with you, said that he, wants, you know, he was eyeing a decade in Downing Street and he barely beyond that lasted a year. Do you think that ultimately the seeds were sown, actually just by dint of Boris Johnson's personality, that his ability to survive in a job is pressured and detailed and dramatic as being Prime Minister. He just he just was never going to survive and, and do 10 years like a Blair or a Thatcher. I think one of the issues was the kind of chronic instability under Boris Johnson's government. And there were successive rounds of this. It wasn't just at one point. And what I mean by that is there was constant infighting in number 10. There were different figures and different people who were all trading off. They all thought they had his ear. And then in Cabinet, there was constant infighting. Uh, and then beyond that, there was infighting between the Prime Minister himself and his Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who had two very different visions. So the way that he governed and the way he solicited advice was inherently unstable. The, what I kind of felt, looking at it in hindsight, was he, Boris Johnson didn't really have very many loyal people around him that were loyal to him personally, and it was an incredibly fractured and disunited number 10. One of the things I wanted to look at was when Boris Johnson actually quit and the events around number 10 and what was going on, how personal it suddenly got. Yeah. So in his dying days, as he was sitting in number 10 and everyone was resigning left, right and centre, Boris Johnson appears to have blamed Michael Gove and gone back to that oldest of the Tory wounds, that oldest of the Brexit psychodramas. I've realised in the last few days that Boris isn't capable of building that team and providing that unity. I got this extraordinary briefing from a senior ally of Boris Johnson as everything was falling around him, that it was all that snake Michael Gove's fault. And this caused its own, had its own repercussions. We had, shortly after that, the summer party, which was a spectator's big event in Spectator Garden, and it was within days of the resignation of Boris Johnson. And I remember standing there, and there was a guy that worked for Michael Gove called Josh Grimston, and there was a guy that worked for Boris Johnson, his director of communications called Gito Harry, and literally they physically squared up to each other 
in the garden. The violence, the political violence, nearly ended in fisticuffs in front of me and several other journalists at this very serene, cerebral event. So it was just, there was a kind of undercurrent of violence throughout of it all that never, even in its dying days, was still there. That's a good one. And in fact, I think at that event, it was the early days of the Tory leadership contest to then replace Boris Johnson, which is soon at was at sort of one end of the garden, gland handing everyone, Liz Truss at the other. I mean, what an extraordinary leadership contest, basically this time last year, where this sort of disjoint happened even more, where Liz Truss was the darling of the party, but the public never really warmed to her. And so it, and nor actually did her colleagues, and so it played out when she became Prime Minister. And when she became Prime Minister, I mean, that 49 days in terms of sheer carnage takes some beating. And I, I, I want to go back to nearly a year ago to that conference, that Conservative Party conference, because I remember walking in there and literally arrived at conference and was receiving briefings from trust allies in the most awful foul terms against the people that she thought were trying to remove her and then likewise on the other side and it was complete chaos we had a lunch with quasi Kwarteng on the day that he dropped the additional rate of income tax and he was remarkably calm at this lunch remarkably calm several hours later he's forced into one of the biggest u-turns that completely destabilized the government and i also remember going to see liz truss at that conference so sitting there and by this stage, many acts of political violence have been perpetrated. Grant Shapps, who was very concerned about Liz Truss's regime, was going around with his Samsung phone, which <laughs> folded out and had a giant spreadsheet. He got on a it. new phone because it folded out, so it had a bigger screen, so he could see the, the spreadsheet which listed people who might bring down Liz Truss, basically. Exactly. It was a long list of people that were there, and the, the threat was very visible. Michael Gove was very publicly trying to undermine her and so the, the Tory warfare was all out and she'd been forced to drop this flagship measure the 45p rate and when we saw her in person in her conference suite she was just remarkably calm she was remarkably sanguine about it all and she thought there was a way through she thought there was a way forward the abolition of the 45p tax rate became a distraction from the major parts of our growth plan that is why we're no longer proceeding with it I get it and I have listened I remember emerging from it thinking that is one of the most surreal things I've ever, literally everything is blowing up around you and you're just very serene and very calm about it. And I thought I could only assume that she was disconnected from the events that were happening directly around her at that point in time because you walk out into that hotel bar afterwards and it's all there in the open again. <laughs> and then, of course, we come back from the party conference. Liz Truss says she's a fighter, not a quitter. And then Kwasi Kwarteng is in America, he's at the IMF, he's told to come home because it's all going a bit wrong. And you, <laughs> in an act of high political drama, essentially sack Kwasi Kwarteng by tweet. So, what happened was Kwasi Kwarteng was flying back, as you say, from the IMF, and all was not well. And I picked up a suggestion that was really incendiary that Liz Truss was about to sack Kwasi Kwarteng. And it's the kind of thing you have to be very careful with. So I did some more checking and I got it confirmed. And then I thought, well, what do I do with this? It's, this is politics happening at hyperspeed. It's not like we wait for newspapers anymore. We have live blogs, we have Twitter. So I thought, let's just get it out there. So we did the tweet and we put it at the top of the live blog on the Times' live blog and everything just exploded because at this point in time, Kwasi Kwarteng was completely unaware that he was going to be sacked. And he learned that he was going to be sacked reading that tweet and the Times Live blog. And I actually learned on Twitter, on Steve Swinford's Twitter, 
So I was in the car on the way to Downing Street and my special advisor said, oh, have you seen this? And I looked at it and it said, you know, Kwasi Kwarteng has been sacked or will be sacked. I can't remember which tense it was. And I was very much of the view that, um, oh, well, that's interesting. There was an amazing series of photos. There was one when he got into the car at the airport, when he was smiling for the cameras, <laughs> going to seal his trust, going to fix the economy, going to make everything right. And when he got out at number 10, looking very grim-faced. When I say politics is happening at hyperspeed, that is one of the big changes. If you're looking at all of the political editors you've interviewed, we're in this era now where, and particularly that Liz Truss era, things were happening almost minute by minute. Yeah. You were getting entire budgets reversed in a matter of hours. You were getting successive cabinet resignations, appointments. And it's just the sheer pace of it that is one of the biggest changes in covering politics. Do you think that a Liz Truss prime minister would have survived that period if it had been the 1970s? Is there something about the relentlessness of rolling news, social media, live blogs, and actually the fact that the Westminster Village feeds that beast the entire time in perhaps the way they, they wouldn't have done because they would have thought, well, you had one deadline at the end of the day. Do you think those sets of economic and political circumstances would have been survivable in a different media era? No, I don't think they would have been. I think for two reasons. One is the choices that she made. So that offer of £45 billion worth of unfunded tax cuts, which fundamentally destabilised the markets. And secondly, just the sheer number and the profile of people that were opposed to her. So there were so many enemies. It wasn't just factions. This was hundreds of MPs literally ranged against her. As you said, Matt, she had the support of the membership, but a very large chunk of the Conservative Party MPs, the parliamentarians themselves, were opposed to her. And that became totally unstable. So when you get those two things, you've got her choices, you've got these very risky choices on the economy that she took with the consequences, allied with the fact that there were so many people who didn't want her to be Prime Minister in the first place, and that meant it was totally unsustainable. And that would have been as unsustainable back then as it was now. Now, Twitter, the way we report on things accelerates all of that. It means that things happen faster, hence it was a 49-day premiership, but all of the seeds of the destruction were there almost from day one. The fundamentals ultimately remain the same. We should move on to the current Prime Minister, but even the period between Liz Truss's resignation and Rishi Sunak finally getting the job that he wanted. Extraordinary moment of Boris Johnson attempting a comeback. Uh, clearly that, that sort of comeback now would be harder because he's not still an MP. Do you think he was delusional to think he could have come back at that point last, last what, October, November? I think it would have been very hard for him to come back at that point, but it is worth remembering he did still have quite a significant number of MPs backing him. They were Johnson loyalists in the party, so there was space for it. I think that ultimately, if it came down to it, Rishi Sunak would have had the broader support and would have won it, but it would have been a very nasty and very bitter leadership contest. Um, so was it delusional? I don't know about delusional because there was a potential way of him actually achieving what he set out to do, but it was very unlikely. And the consequences of that bloodshed, we're probably getting close to general election territory at that point of them ripping, ripping themselves to shreds again. So here we are then. We've got Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister. It's fair to say that the, the pace, the psychodrama, if you like, of politics has settled down. The conversation now is actually much more about the economy, probably, than it is about personalities. Um it's not doing him any good in the in the polls. How do you find Rishi Sunak as a as a prime minister's deal with compared to compared to the others? So his approach to this job. So so lots of people have known Rishi Sunak for quite a while. I know him 
dating back from when he was a relatively junior minister in the Department for Communities. And he, he was always approachable and he uh, is friendly and will talk to journalists. Um, but his approach to this job has been one to minimise risks, as you said, to take out the psychodrama, to try to get a grip on the economy and to try to turn things around. And as we sit here today, Matt, we are at effectively a tipping point in his premiership in that, yes, things are calmer. I would say this is the quietest recess that we've seen since 2014, I think. I was trying to work out how... Pre, yes, pre-Scottish um, yes. referendum. Yeah, yeah, yeah pre-Scottish referendum, pre-Brexit. Pre um, so this is a relatively quiet recess. It feels like it used to, but you've still got this thwonking 20-point gap in the polls. And everyone that I'm talking to in the Cabinet and the Ministers and the Tory MPs are saying he needs to do something. We can't just have this five priorities, which are basically about making everyone's life a little bit less bad or less worse than it is now. He needs to offer a positive vision and he needs to go out there and do it. And now Rishi Sunak is naturally cautious. So he's weighing up when is the right time to do that and what that looks like. But I am detecting an impatience among Tory MPs. We've got um, MPs will be back shortly. And when they come back, the party is going to start getting much more difficult to manage again. And crucially, Cabinet is going to start getting much more difficult to manage again. I have to say, Steve, having worked closely with you in the Times Parliamentary Office, I've never seen anyone work the phones harder. Quite often I'll be talking to you and suddenly I'll look around, you're, he's on the phone again, he's got just a relentlessness of, of, of bashing the phones, get, basically trying to get every story from every angle. Who, without necessarily naming names, is it the Labour Party, is it Tory backbenchers, is it the Cabinet, who, who's always guaranteed to pick the phone up? Who, how, how do, you, how do you, you hammer the phones to make sure you're getting to, like, as you said, getting to, as, as much as you can, the truth of what's going on? So one of the misconceptions about politics is it's all about the principles. So it's all about the kind of big figures, the leaders, the cabinet ministers. It's not. Westminster is a kind of interconnected spider's web almost of lots of people and many of them are very small players people won't know their names, they won't know who they are and occasionally you find someone and they know everything and they're really interested in it and they know the whole wider picture and so often the very biggest, some of the very biggest stories that I have broken have come from relative people on the scale that are minnows and would not be considered, that no one knows their names as I said, um, but that's the point, that it goes far beyond the principles. The people that know what's going on in the rooms of power and where things are happening are, are much kind of lower down the food chain than you'd think. And it's a lot of those people um, that are relatively anonymous that are in incredibly useful to me and always have been. And that's not to say that the cabinet ministers and all the other players aren't important, but it's a much broader network than people think. And looking back over this this series then, you know, Fred Emery, the rise of Margaret Thatcher, the fall of Jim Callaghan. We had Julian Haviland and his tussles with uh, Margaret Thatcher and his extraordinary stories about the Queen as well. Uh, you know, Peter Riddle in the, the fall of Thatcher, the Blairite New Labour area uh, dominated by Philip Webster, the Coalition, uh, Roland Watson, Brexit, sort of dominated Francis Elliott's time. Given the drama of the last two or three years of you having the political editor job, would you swap that for any other period in that in that time? 
No, absolutely not. It's, <laughs> it's been, it's been as look as as a journalist. Like I say, my my modus operandi is to put readers in the room where it's happened, and you will not find a more. It may be Brexit. Actually, the period after Brexit yeah. was on a par, but this to try to give readers a full three sixty view of what's going on in government, which is I think what it's all about. This is as good as it gets from that point of view of trying to just explain to people what's happening and why it's happening. Um, a pinch me moment in the last three years of you being political editor where you just thought, I've really got, as we've been, the phrase I've been using in this series, the sort of front row seat of political history. So, one of the things I wanted to tell you about, one of the most surreal moments that I've had as a reporter, Matt was during the pandemic. So I remember it really distinctly. It was 2020. And I had been working on a story all day that Matt Hancock was pushing for stronger, another lockdown, basically a second lockdown. But Boris Johnson was resisting. And for some reason, the pandemic things always happened on Fridays. I wanted to give you a little insight into my setup. So I was sitting in the bedroom on my fold-out desk with my laptop, because that's what the pandemic was like. And I was calling around as many people as I could. And something didn't smell right about the story. Something wasn't good and it it just didn't chime correctly. And it got to six o'clock and we have early copy deadlines on a Friday. And the editor started calling me and saying, you need to file your story now, Steve. I said, I just need a little bit more time. Something's not quite right with the story. I said, no, no, we're going to go late off stone. You need to file your story. So I said, hang on, John Wither was the editor. And then I managed to put in a few more calls and I discovered that there had been a secret meeting that afternoon between Boris Johnson, the then Prime Minister, and all the most senior cabinet ministers. And they had decided to put the UK into a second lockdown that was going to start the following week. Uh, And I sat there and I thought, this is utterly incendiary. Um, And I rang up a few more people, managed to stand it up, managed to crash it into the paper for first edition that evening. And I remember sitting there after doing this, and the the adrenaline from that kind of reporting is, it's quite an extraordinary thing as you're reporting on it. And I was just sitting there in my bedroom, on my fold-out desk, on my laptop, and just thinking, this is absolutely extraordinary. We were going down to, to lockdown. I remember going downstairs and saying to friends and family, so just so you know, everyone, we're going into lockdown. And we, when the front page came out, when the, our story came out that evening, the Times was the first to break that story. Um, and it actually accelerated the moves. The government then had to, because it was all true, the government had to bring forward a press conference till Saturday. Boris Johnson did a press conference on Saturday. Christmas is going to be different this year, but it's my sincere hope and belief that by taking tough action now, we can allow families across the country to be together. All it was is reporting on what was happening, but at the same time, it's extraordinary sometimes the extent, the kind of influence that that reporting can have when you're just literally someone with a phone at a computer on a fold-out desk. Um, And a lot of the pandemic was like that. We were finding out about things that would affect the lives of millions and millions of people very significantly, uh, just literally on our own in our bedrooms doing our reporting because we couldn't go into work. Um, And it it just really has stuck with me as one of the the most surreal moments of my career. You've been political for three years, a hell of a lot's happened in that time. What do you think politics looks like in three years' time? I think the economy is still dominant. I think that whoever wins this election is probably going to be faced with an issue where they actually have to raise taxes. They're not going to say that publicly now. They'll all go into the election promising to cut taxes. But it's going to be difficult. And the big question for whoever wins it is, can they get economic growth going? Can they get get us out of this? And, and that's what 
a lot of politics actually comes down to. It does always come down to the economy. It's at the root of everything. Yes, there are good choices, there are bad choices, there are good fiscal choices, there are bad fiscal choices. But are people feeling, it's the oldest question in the world, Matt, yeah. are you feeling better off? You've got more money in your pockets. And the concern I've got looking at this is I'm not sure that given the economic, the tectonic economic plates involved, it's going to be very difficult to get growth going and it's going to be a very difficult government, whoever wins it. Well, Stephen Swinford, current political editor of The Times and uh, following in the footsteps of some greats that we've, we've heard from over the last uh, few days. Thanks very much for joining us on Times. Absolute pleasure, Matt. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget, if you've missed any of the episodes of The Political Editor, just look back on your podcast feed. There are seven episodes altogether, and they're all just brilliant, like The Crown, but for politics, as Stig Abel described them. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye.